In the 1870s, there was a famous artist by the name of Holman Hunt, and he painted a picture that depicts a young Jesus working in the carpentry shop in Nazareth, and the painting is amazing in its historical detail. Holman painted the picture while he was in the Holy Land, where he had meticulously researched the archaeological detail of the clothing the people would have worn at the time, the, the tools that Jesus would have actually used. And in the painting, the floor of the carpentry shop is covered with wood shavings, and there's tools all around. And there's a tool rack hanging on the back wall, and it has the woodworking tools stuck in it like we often do in our shops. And the young Jesus is shown just putting down a saw, and he's standing with his arms in the air, looking out towards the setting sun just as he's finished a long day's work. And he's stripped down to the waist as if he's been working hard, and his shadow falls on the back wall, and the tool rack forms the cross, and the shadow forms him hanging on the cross. And down in the lower left-hand corner is his mother Mary. And she's down on her knees, and she's opening a chest. And you can see the tops of the gifts of the Magi in that chest. And as she looks up towards the wall, she sees the shadow of the cross and her son hanging on the cross. Holman's works are referred to as painted sermons, and there's many that he has done. And this sermon portrays the truth that Jesus was the only man ever born whose purpose was to die. The child born in Bethlehem was born to die. The painting is called The Shadow of Death. From the time Jesus was born, he lived and walked in the shadow of the cross. We see the shadow of death with the third gift that the Magi presented to the Christ child, the gift of myrrh. The shadow of death begins with myrrh. The child was born to die, which makes us wonder, as we sung this morning, how much did Mary know about the fate of that child? At what point was it revealed to her where she said, oh, I, I'm starting to get it now. Like the song, Mary, did you know that your baby boy, did you know that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Do you know, did you know that that would be a cross where he'd take upon all of our sins? And we wonder, at what point did she know? Now, Mary was given some hints along the way. The first hint was the announcement of the angel of the Lord to Joseph. We saw that in Matthew chapter 1 at verse 18. In the first chapter of Matthew, we have the account of the birth of Jesus beginning with the angelic appearance to Joseph. In verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1, as we read, said, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. And when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 21, we have the first hint 
of what Jesus would come to do. The angel said, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The Greek form is Jesus. We get the word Jesus from it. Jesus. It means the same as the Hebrew Joshua. Joshua. Yeshua. It means Jehovah or Yahweh. Yahweh saves. Jehovah saves. Jesus and Joshua mean that God saves. Now certainly Mary and Joseph understood Jesus was the promised and highly anticipated Messiah. They knew he'd be the deliverer of Israel. And we see that in Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 1, first chapter of Luke. And this is when the angel appeared, the angel Gabriel appeared to to Mary to tell her that she would bear the the Son of God. And we pick it up in chapter 1 of Luke in, in verse 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and you shall conceive in your womb and bear a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So she's beginning to understand that this is the one promised, the Messiah that's coming is going to be reign on the throne of David as promised in the Old Testament, the forever throne. But Mary, did you know that the shadow of death would be on your baby from the moment he was born? So the second hint came when they brought Jesus to the temple to be dedicated. And that's still here in the Gospel of of Luke in chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 at verse 21. In the second chapter of Luke, Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple on his eighth day after he was born to be dedicated. That was traditional to be dedicated. So we pick it up in in verse 21. I'm going to read quite a bit of this. Luke chapter 2 at verse 21. And when the eight days had passed before his circumcision, that's eight days after his birth, his name was then called Jesus at the circumcision. That's when they would name the, the baby. The name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. The word Christ there, Messiah. Christ and Messiah are the same words, Old Testament and New Testament. And he came in the spirit to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. 
And his father and mother were amazed at the things which had been said about him. Here Mary and Joseph are given a wonderful confirmation of who this baby is. Simeon's words confirm the words of the angels. And they confirm what Mary and Joseph believed in their hearts about Jesus and his salvation for his people. And he's the promised deliverer. But Simeon adds the second hint about the shadow of death. Verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts for many hearts may be revealed. This child is going to be rejected by many. It was going to be their undoing. But he will bring the greatest joy to others. Then he turns to Mary and says, a sword will pierce even your own soul. How'd you like to hear that at a dedication service? It's like, look out, this child's going to be rejected, and Mary, you're going to feel an intense pain, which she did when she saw him crucified. Simeon says to her, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. Trouble is going to come, Mary, down the way, and suffering and conflict and pain. Jesus is going to be a dividing line, a dividing line. He's going to be a point of demarcation. He's going to be a turning point. And based on how people respond to him, some are going to rise and some are going to fall. He's going to be the determiner of destiny. In fact, the word appointed is the word destined. The child is destined to determine the fall and the rise of many in Israel. What is being introduced here is that there's going to be some people who are not going to rise to the glory of salvation. They're just not going to get there. They're not going to rise to the realities of kingdom blessing. They're not going to rise to joy and peace and prosperity and righteousness. They're going to fall. And what's new here in the thought of salvation at the time is that not all the Jews are going to make it. Because that's what they believed at the time. And we saw this in our study in the book of Romans. Not only are some Gentiles going to be saved, but some Jews are going to be lost. We could argue that most Jews are going to be lost. And this adds a whole new perspective to what the Jews believed at the time. But Simeon knew the prophet Isaiah. And this is right out of Isaiah chapter 8. The prophet had said so. Listen to what... Uh, Isaiah wrote of the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. It said, Then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The Messiah is going to be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and many will stumble and fall and be broken and shattered. And the prophet said that this was happening. John in his gospel put it this way. He would come to his own and his own what? Would receive him not. Receive him not. And not only would there be separation over the Messiah, some would rise, some would fall. There's going to be opposition to him. Open opposition. (coughs) Excuse me. He's going to be opposed. Says the child will be a sign to be opposed. What does a sign do? A sign points to something. A sign signifies something. 
Jesus will represent as a sign. He will signify what people hate. And what do they hate? The Bible tells us they hate righteousness. Men don't love the light. They love what? Darkness. To be opposed is the Greek verb, which means to contest. To contest with words. Simeon's saying, it's not going to go smooth, Mary. His life is going to be held up and they're going to contest it. It's going to come from insults. It'll start out with indifference. Then it's going to be insults, mockery, abuse, hatred, venomous vilification, plotting, physical torture, and execution. Mary, a sword will pierce even your own soul. Mary, did you know? And the third hint about the shadow of death is the third gift brought by the Magi, the gift of myrrh. This gift insinuates that the child is here to die. Mary, your child is born to die. He's going to live his whole life in the shadow of death. While gold is a gift fit for a king, and that sounds good, we like that. Frankincense is a gift fit for God. Myrrh is a gift fit for a sacrifice, for a savior. Now, like frankincense, myrrh was a resinous sap that came out of a certain type of tree that grew in the southern Arabian Peninsula. And they would cut, cut the tree, cut the bark of the tree, and the sap would ooze out, and then it would form little nodules. And while they're still soft, they'd cut those nodules off. And uh, that, that was myrrh from this sap. And while frankincense was more golden in color and smooth, Myrrh was darkish, reddish, brown, and more jagged, and uh, it uh, had a different odor, and, uh, and in some cases, a different use th than myrrh. If you were to look it up in your Bible, you'll discover that the word myrrh appears 17 times. 14 of those are in the Old Testament, and three of them are in the New Testament. Now, the Hebrew word for myrrh sounds like the English word more, not M-O-R-R-E, but just M-O-R. More, more. It's called in Hebrew more, and in English, it's myrrh. It's myrrh. But in the New Testament, the Greek word is one that may sound familiar to you. It's the word smyrna. Does that sound familiar? From the book of Revelation, smyrna is one of the seven cities, the church, one of the churches in the seven cities in which Jesus Christ himself penned a letter by the hand of, of John the Revelator. And it's one of the seven churches in Asia Minor minor or modern-day Turkey. Now, Smyrna was 30 miles north of Ephesus. Today, it's called Izmir, Izmir, Turkey. It's in Turkey. And in modern history, it's a seaport where Aristotle Onassis lived. Anybody remember him? Yeah, he married Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis after President Kennedy was assassinated. A very rich uh, commercial... Um, whatever you call those guys, <laughs> anyway. But Izmir or Smyrna in ancient times has always been a chief commercial port. In ancient times, the chief export of that city was myrrh, Smyrna. And so they named the city after that which they, they exported. Now, myrrh or Smyrna was used for a variety of things in biblical times. And they all seem more than a little odd to be a gift fitting for a child. So turn to the book of Esther in the Old Testament. When's the last time you turned over to Esther? Esther chapter 2. I think it comes right after Nehemiah. Yeah, 
kind of tucked in there, right before Job, maybe. That's a little easier to find. Esther chapter 2. In Esther chapter 2, beginning at verse 12, we see that myrrh was used for beauty treatment for women. When Esther, even, be, even before she became queen, she was brought before the king. In Esther chapter 2, verse 12, we read, Now when the turn of each young lady came to go into King Ahasuerus after the end of her 12 months under the regulations for the women, for the days of their beautification was completed as follows, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women. Now that's quite a beauty treatment. The ultimate spa experience, six months of myrrh, and historically we are told that the beauty treatment lasted up to a year. So it must have really been something. I wonder if I had a money back guarantee. You know, I was thinking of senses this week, and I bought the shampoo that I always buy at Bymart, you know, the, the suave strawberry shampoo. And when I got it home, it said on it now, 24 hours scent. And I smelled it and go, that isn't going to work in our household. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, so a year of beauty treatment, I guess if, if you really like the smell of myrrh, a year of that is, is pretty good stuff. Another passage in the Old Testament tells us that the king's garments are, quote, scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia. And a use that we see in the New Testament was that myrrh was used as an analgesic. It took away pain. It took away the pain. And it's still recommended in certain parts of the world for toothaches, for sprains, minor aches and pains. And it was used in the Bible that way. You don't need to turn to it, but we see this in Mark chapter 15 at verse 23 when Jesus was hanging on the cross. In Mark 15, we're told, they gave Jesus wine mingled with myrrh to drink. In the King James Version, it's translated gall. Wine mingled with myrrh. The Greek verb is smyrinzo. comes from the word smyrno. It means to offer myrrh. To, to smyrninize is the way we'd put it directly into English. But he did not take it. He didn't take it. When Jesus was on the cross and he was dying the most excruciating death of crucifixion, the Romans offered him wine and myrrh to deaden the pain, and Jesus refused it. It's just as if if he saw the, the importance of, of being the substitute, taking on himself the sins of the world, to feel every single ounce of pain. And he refused to have that pain deadened. Now, except for his medicinal qualities, myrrh seems like a strange gift for a child. A child certainly doesn't need a beauty treatment. Every baby is beautiful. Maybe a little perfume might help, especially during diaper time. <laughs> it could be used for teething pain and another pain, but none of these seem like suitable, what we call baby shower gifts. But the fourth way myrrh was used in ancient days seems to be really too far out there. Too far out there. But it's the way that has significance with the gift of the Magi. According to the historian Herodotus, Myrrh was used as an embalming fluid, an embalming fluid. The Egyptians used it in the mummification process on the interior of the body. And it was used by the Jews to treat the outside of the corpse. And we see this in John's gospel 
In John chapter 19 and the 38th verse, the 19th chapter of John contains the account of the crucifixion of Jesus. And after Jesus dies, we pick it up at verse 38 of John chapter 19. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings. Incidentally, those linen wrappings would also be translated swaddling clothes in the Bible. They're the wrappings that they used in the mummification process and in the wrapping of bodies, as is the burial custom for the Jews. Now, the reason that myrrh was used is obvious because human bodies, any kind of animal body, once it dies, it corrupts, it stinks. It's the most horrible stench imaginable. And to mitigate against the stench of that tomb experience, Myrrh and aloes were used to encase the body. And what's interesting here as we see this is the same substance that was associated with Jesus' early life, the gift of myrrh, is also associated with the end of his life. Myrrh was presented to him after his birth, and myrrh is presented to him and used for him at his death. And now that we've traced what myrrh was used for and hinted somewhat at symbolic and theological significance, what it meant for Jesus to live in the shadow of death, I want us to go back to the Old Testament for a little bit and see more deeply what myrrh meant. To the ancient rabbis and what it means specifically in relationship to Jesus Christ and why is it a gift fitting for a savior for a sacrifice. So please turn to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2. Verse 1, 22nd chapter of Genesis, at verse 1. And here we have the account of where God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. Abraham was told to go to a certain place and to sacrifice his son. And of course, we know the story. We know that God prevented Abraham from sacrificing his son and instead provided a ram for the sacrifice, but I want to trace something in the Old Testament passages that I find fascinating, and I think you will too. Verse 22, or verse 1 of chapter 22, and it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him here as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Abraham, go to the land of Moriah. The Hebrew root word for Moriah is more. Okay, quiz time. I think you guys know this. See if you've been paying attention. What does the Hebrew word more mean? Myrrh. It's myrrh. The word Moriah means the place of myrrh. Mount Moriah means the mountain of the place of myrrh. Sacrifice your son at the place of myrrh. And so in Jesus' day, (coughs) the rabbis associated myrrh with sacrificial death. Myrrh symbolized sacrificial death, and especially Abraham giving his son on Mount 
Moriah. So to an ancient Hebrew rabbi, myrrh was immediately connected with death, especially the sacrifice of a father of his son. Myrrh meant death, especially the death of a son. But we don't stop here. Go over to 2 Chronicles chapter 3, the first verse. In the third chapter of 2 Chronicles, Solomon is beginning to build the temple of God, and he's going to build it on a certain spot. Now, last Sunday in the adult Sunday school class, Chris showed us in 1 Chronicles that God commanded King David to build an altar of the Lord to bring the, uh, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant and erect the temple, the tabernacle rather, the tent structure, and to do that on a threshing floor that belonged to Ornan the Jebusite. So David purchased the threshing floor from Ornan and built the altar to the Lord and erected the tabernacle. But you might remember that David was not allowed to build the temple of God. That task would come to his son, King Solomon. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 13, we learn something fascinating about the location of the threshing floor. Verse, or first chapter 3 of, first, of Second Chronicles. I don't know if I got those numbers right. 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, where? On Mount Moriah, on the place of Myrrh, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornion the Jebusite. The threshing floor and the altar and the tabernacle where all the sacrifices were offered in the tabernacle until the temple was built were offered on the Mount of Myrrh. Now, many scholars believe the threshing floor of Ornan on Mount Moriah was the exact same spot where Abraham had come to sacrifice Isaac. It just makes all kinds of sense. That over hundreds of years, that thousands, maybe millions, hundreds of thousands, Passover lambs and other animals would be sacrificed on the same spot that Abraham brought his son Isaac. But there was another death on the Mount of Myrrh, nearby at a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And at the exact hour and the exact time of the sacrifice of the Passover lamb at the temple, where they sacrificed that one lamb that, that was symbolic of all the hundreds of thousands of lambs maybe that would have been sacrificed on that day. At the same time, the, at the ninth hour when they sacrificed the lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world was being sacrificed on the Mount of Myrrh. Myrrh meant sacrificial death, a death fitting for a savior. So some months after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph are living in a house in Bethlehem. And some visitors arrive from the east. And it would have been just three camels and three wise guys. It would have been a big entourage of, of many people coming. But I do love our nativity scene. I love nativity. That's not to take away. You know, go, find, go to Costco and find 600 more guys or something. But, uh, <laughs> but some visitors came from the east and they came bearing gifts and coming into the house they saw the child with Mary his mother and they fell to the ground and worshipped him they opened their treasures they presented to him gifts of gold frankincense and myrrh and I wonder what Mary and Joseph are thinking at this point 
The Magi gave gold, a gift fitting for a king, the Messiah. They understood something of that. But they'd never seen such a gift. But on behalf of the child, they, they receive it anyway, maybe almost embarrassed. It seems like too much. The Magi give the frankincense. And Mary and Joseph understand this is a gift fitting for the Son of God. Fitting for God come in the flesh. They knew the Holy Spirit had come upon Mary and that which is born of her is born of the, the Holy Spirit. And so they received the frankincense. And then the gifts pull out the last gift. And Mary doesn't know what to say. Oh, myrrh. Embalming fluid. How lovely. How lovely. But she begins to feel the pangs of that sword piercing her soul. How appropriate are the words of the fourth verse of the We Three Kings. You notice we sang it every week. <laughs> we sang the verses that are appropriate. Myrrh is mine, its bitter perfume breathes a life of gathering gloom. Sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in the stone-cold tomb. There's no sugarcoating this part of Christmas other than the gratitude that we express in worship for our Savior Jesus Christ dying on the cross so that we might have eternal life. But I need to make an important qualification here. You need to know this. No one is saved by Jesus' life. No one is saved by following his example, following his words. No one is saved by celebrating his birth. No one is saved by acknowledging that Jesus is the King of Kings. No one is saved by recognizing that he is God. As important as all these things are, we are saved not by Jesus' life, but we are saved by his death. By his death. Salvation only comes as you believe that Jesus took your place on that cross. And you need to ask yourself, do I believe that? Do I believe that? Have you put your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? And there's something else that you should know. It's important that you know this as well. Myrrh was a substance that gave off its best scent only when it was crushed. Only when it was crushed. Not when it was burned. Not like frankincense, the glorious scent coming up. Not when it's applied as an ointment. Only when it's crushed. Does that ring a bell? Isaiah said, Truly our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, today we have thought about the shadow of death that cast itself on the crib of Jesus and on his entire life and purpose. We thank you that Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, God of very God come in the flesh to whom we bow and submit our lives as our God as we worship. Father, we thank you that one day he'll rule over all creation that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
to your glory, Father. But it's also fitting to know that he came for a purpose. And that was atonement, to be a sacrifice, to bear our sins. And all of us have sinned. All of us have come short of your glory. But we celebrate that a sacrifice, a lamb has come into the world to take away the sin of the world. And we rejoice, Lord, in humility, bowing down, thanking you, worshiping you. In Jesus' name, amen.